Recovery means to me is freedom and peace. There is hope. Recovery is awesome. Recovery works. Recovery is possible. There is hope. Recovery is possible. There is hope. Recovery to me means freedom. Recovery is possible. Recovery works. Recovery is always possible. It's fantastic. Progress, not perfection. Recovery is possible. Recovery works. Recovery is a journey, not a destination. Welcome to Montana's Peer Network Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Jim Haney, Executive Director, and today I have a very special guest with me. Uh, she has been on before. She's a certified peer support specialist at Montana State Hospital. Um, she's a longtime member of MPN. Uh, she's an advocate, and I really like doing podcasts with her. And uh, so I invited her to come back. Um, Sammy, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody a little bit, little bit about, about who you are. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you uh, for having me. It's quite an honor. Uh, I uh, got got into peer support. I took the peer support journey. I started it in January of 22, and I did a lot of webinars and online trainings, even more than you need to get your license because I'm that passionate about recovery. Um, Presently, I've been doing a lot of advocacy work and joining as many councils across the state and also here locally. Um, I do work part-time doing peer support at the state hospital. Uh, I definitely feel um, when I leave every day that I work that I'm making a difference and that keeps me coming back. Nice. Nice. It's such a good feeling, isn't it? When you have a job that, you know, when you're done for the day, you feel like you actually made a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's really, there's really no words to really describe mm -hmm. the feeling in its entirety. Well, today we thought we would talk a little bit about mental health crisis and maybe try to give the listeners a little insight into what that experience is like. Sammy and I are both people who've experienced mental health crisis and been hospitalized and, and then, you know, found recovery. And um, because I, I've been thinking about this topic and, you know, you and I visited over the summer where we were, we were talking, uh, I, I was doing interviews um, about, the crisis system, right, and um, putting that together for some some guides and some advocacy work. But in that, I, I got thinking about, you know, if you're if you're a person who's never experienced mental health crisis, you 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 don't really know, like unless you've gone through that. And so I thought, boy, that would be a great topic to come back to and and have Sammy come on and and for you and I to just share our personal experiences with mental health crisis and our thoughts around it and what helped and what didn't and just what the experience is like and the aftermath of it in in our lives and what happens and then how how we can find recovery we, we found recovery how people can find recovery to just help people out there who like I said may not have ever had that experience 
because it's one thing to say, well, we need services, we need crisis services, but if you've never had that experience, you don't, you might not understand why we need that and why that's so important. And I think by us sharing our experiences, maybe that would give people some insight into it. So Sammy agreed to come on. And I know you're also passionate about this topic also. I mean, you work, you work at the state hospital, which is um, not so much in the moment of a crisis with a person, but it's part of what can happen uh, if the person doesn't get help or get treatment and how things can get worse. Um, but <clears throat> before we jump into that, let's just start, Sammy, with just, I'll, I'll just put it out there. Let's, let's just start by sharing our feelings. When we say mental health crisis, what comes to mind for you? Honestly, a tremendous amount of fear. Um, mm. I've been stable and in recovery for over six and a half years. Uh, prior to that, my experience with mental health crisis was, to say the least, astronomical for me. I have been to um, all of the, I wouldn't say all, but I've been to the majority of crisis stabilization units that are in a hospital, like a regular physical health hospital. I've been to a majority of Western's residential crisis service houses throughout the state that are unfortunately now not operating. And I have probably, um, if I were to guess, had 10 hospitalizations to the state hospital. So when I say that being in crisis uh, provides me with a tremendous amount of fear, that, that is very accurate. Um, if we want to discuss how how I'm living in recovery and how I'm embracing recovery, we can do that in another podcast. But for this one, I think that to describe mental health crisis, um, if it goes too far, there's a huge amount of denial. Mm -hmm. uh, my very first time meeting you, well, I was sitting at my dad's kitchen table and you were visiting with my dad in the kitchen area and you had a younger gentleman with you with dark hair that was trying to get me to go to Hope House. And at that point in my crisis, the denial had set in. So I'm, no, I'm not going to Hope House. No, I'm not going to Hope House. And if, if a person can't voluntarily go to a crisis center, my experience has been de further decompensation and law enforcement involvement. Whether that means that I was out wandering the streets because of psychosis, because of crisis, and I get picked up for loitering, I get picked up for trespassing, I get picked up for disorderly conduct, and then you go to jail, right? Mm 
So in a way, this also leads into the criminalization of mental health, um, especially since the residential crisis houses that were sparsed throughout our state, the majority of them are now group homes. That is even more of criminalization of mental health and mental health crisis uh, patients, clients, individuals, people who are being housed in jail awaiting yeah. their commitment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, as I was listening to you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my own experience and, and prepping for the, for the podcast, but, you know, you, you went in that direction of criminalization and, and, and it made me think instantly when you said that about um, <clears throat> the, the first time, this is uh, the first time I was hospitalized. Uh, before I was hospitalized, I was at the hospital, I was in the emergency room, and I was there for a, a suicide attempt. And they were trying to figure out um, if they should, if they needed to uh, pump my stomach, I had taken a bunch of pills. And I remember a sheriff's deputy coming in and handcuffing me to the bed rail. Didn't, didn't say anything, didn't explain anything, didn't no comforting words, just came in and said, I'm going to put these on you and handcuffed me to the bed rail. And the first thing I thought was just what you said, I'm going to jail for trying to kill myself. And he walked out of the room and I was sitting there alone. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how long, I, I can't remember exactly. It, you know, it's, you're not in the right kind of frame of mind, but I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm going to jail. I'm at a hospital and I'm going to jail. Now, I didn't go to jail. They admitted me to the behavioral health unit. But as soon as you said that, criminalizing mental health, that, that just popped in my mind. And even to this day, you know, that's, that's you know, 20 some years later, um, it's still traumatic to me. And I still look back at that and I think, God, that was terrible. There was no one there talking to me. There was nobody. And that's the first, you know, the next person that, that came came in and, you know, we're gonna basically take you into custody. And, and we still do that today. We still treat people like that and, and worse. And it just amazes me that that happened to me, but it continues to happen. As a peer supporter, I saw that happen many, many times. Um, yeah, it's just, um, and I think if you're a listener out there and you've never had a mental health crisis, this is real. This is what happens to people. And it, Sammy, can you talk more about that? Um, your experience with the, like, did you, did you know, at what point did you know you were, you were having a, what was there a point where you knew you were having a mental health crisis? So, um, the first time I went to Warm Springs was 2009. And the very first time I did a RAP plan, a wellness recovery action plan 
was sometime between 2005 and 2009. I'm not sure exactly what year, but we would meet once a, once a week in the evening after work hours in a park. So obviously it was summertime and, and we did a rap plan. And so over the years, I constantly revisit it, right? Because I, I didn't want, my intention was not to go back to Warm Springs. My intention was not to be in that situation again. Mm -hmm. So the question of when do, when do I know that I'm in crisis, I know through doing a RAP plan what my stressors are. If I don't take care of those stressors, they're going to turn into early warning signs. And if I don't take care of those early warning signs, it's going to be when things are breaking down. And when things are breaking down, it's too late. I That's what it looks like the week before I get committed. Okay. So, so for instance, um, during before one of my hospitalizations, it was uh, 2015. And it was about April of 2015. And I called Gallatin Mental Health. I knew I was going, I knew I was going manic. And I knew if I didn't take care of it, that it was going to progress. And I didn't want that to happen. So in my cabinet, I had a leftover bottle of Abilify. So I started taking those. And after about a week, I noticed that they were working. So I called Western. I said, I need to make an appointment. Um, this is what my situation is. And uh, I need to be seen to get another script. And they said, well, you're, you're no longer an active patient. D despite the fact that I'd been a patient for 10 years, uh, they said, you're no longer an active patient. And the earliest appointment we have is a month and a half out. So I, I raised some hell on the phone. I said, well, I can't, I can't wait that long. If I wait right. that long, I'm going to be in Warm Springs. Yeah. And after that, I called my medical provider, my medical doctor. I explained the whole situation to his nurse. I said, this is what's happening. This is the medication. This is the dosage. Can you please write me one script until I can get into Western? Oh, uh, they, they discussed it. They called me back. No, he doesn't feel comfortable doing that. So what ended up happening, Jim, is I went on, I went full-blown psychotic within that month. Um, I thought, I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into what it was like, but I'm comfortable doing that. Whatever you're comfortable doing, Sam. Yeah, I think so, that's... Uh, I, I thought that I was God's given gift to prevent World War III and that I was, that all the satellites from the United Nations were, were watching me and my actions and that I was going to prevent World War III. Mm. Uh, I took my kids with me and, um, did what the voices told me to do and I wrecked my car and we walked all night. I had the younger one on my back and the older one, he was maybe in kindergarten, maybe about to start kindergarten at the time. And we literally walked all night. 
I was barefoot and we found a house in the daylight and I asked the old man who lived there if he could give us a ride to town. I, I still don't know where we were. We, we were somewhere, <laughs> but, and then CPS got called. Um, my own family called CPS. Um, mm. The kids were gone. Uh, so, and I was just there alone in mm -hmm. psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, my mom came, she physically came and she said, will you let me help you? And I said, no, get out of here. You just want to destroy my life. You know, CPS had just took my kids. I said, how, how can you love me? How can you want to help me? But, but the reality is, Jim, she really did love me and she really did want to help me and, or else she wouldn't have showed up that day. If I would have gotten her pickup and went to Hope House, they, they would have helped me, right? I mean, I have no doubt that they would have put me on my medication and helped me. But at that point, at that point, the denial sets in. The denial sets in. No, I really am God's gift to the world, and I have to prevent World War III, or the whole human race is going to die. So you, you have to catch it when you're aware that you're symptomatic. If you go on for another month being symptomatic, you're, you're going to be in crisis. And at that point, the only way to get help is if you voluntarily go or you involuntarily go. Right. It's either it's either you go willingly or the cops take you. Right, right, right. Yeah. On my <clears throat> so I've had three three hospitalizations. My my third one, I had uh, a plan. Um, a crisis plan. I didn't know what rap was yet. I hadn't, hadn't been introduced to that. Um, but I had this plan of, you know, if, if I, if I began to feel like I was unwell, then I needed to call this friend of mine <clears throat> and she would come over and see how I was doing. And I probably wasn't, wouldn't be doing well. And then the plan was to call my counselor and then my counselor would do the same thing, basically do an evaluation of me and then get me to a behavioral health unit. And now I didn't have that in my first two hospitalizations. Everything just began to unwind and they both ended up in suicide attempts. And, um, but having that plan made all the difference that made all the difference in the world because I only had to make one phone call to say, I'm not doing well. I need some help. And a few hours later, I'm voluntarily checking in to the hospital, right? My life's not completely falling apart. My job, you know, right. You ruin your finances and, you know, for me, it was, um, you know, I would drink, I would drink to, to, 
um, mask or to deal with what was going on in my head, right? So the third time I was able to stay sober, use the plan, get to the hospital, get stabilized, you know, with medications and groups and, you know, and, um, and then eventually get discharged, go back home. And it took me, it took me about a month to, you know, kind of get back to where I could begin to function again, you know, um, but boy, what a difference that third, the third time was from the first couple of times. I mean, just so I hear, I definitely hear what you're saying. And I agree with you. It's, it's all about having some awareness, I think, in the beginning of what are, what are my, what are my triggers? What does it look like when I'm not doing well? And, and then having that, having a plan, having something in place so you can begin to activate that plan. Um, because without it, I mean, it just destroys your life, right? I mean, it just destroys your life. And, and the system's not very good at detecting those types of things, in my opinion. Like it needs to be external. It needs to be you and people around you. That's where the plan has to originate. Um, yeah, I'm I I'm very passionate about rap. Rap has been instrumental in, in my ability to maintain my recovery. And um one thing I want to mention for all of us who are listening who who have a mental health diagnosis, if you're thinking about going off your meds and your doctor okay's it, please please take take this words of wisdom and maintain the service even if you're not medicated. I mean, you can be on a three-month schedule, you can be on a check-in and six-month schedule, but do not give up that spot in line. Because even if you're only seeing your provider every six months and you don't feel like you need medication, right then if you maintain that service if you're in a crisis like i was and i needed to get a refill of my medication if i would have maintained service i would have been able to have that so if you're ever thinking or need to be unmedicated maintain that line of service for sure yeah, I, I think this is something that um, I see in my work today uh, with uh, people who become peer supporters. They stop, they stop doing the things that got them healthy in the first place and got them to the point where, you know, they come to our class and, and take the peer support one-on-one class and get their certification and they get hired. And I see, I see people... I see people um, stop stop doing the things that got them there, you know, right? Still, still going to therapy or meds, like you're saying, you know, like groups, you know, they, they kind of stop doing those things because, oh well, I don't really need to because I'm I'm a peer supporter, right? But it's like 
it's like, but you still have your diagnosis. You're still, these things can still happen. Yes, you're, you're in a period of stability and things are good and you're, you're in recovery, but, but your work as a peer supporter is, is, is your job, not your recovery. And you have to maintain those things. And I see peer supporters relapse. And, <clears throat> and when I say relapse, I don't know how you feel about it, but when I say relapse, I include mental health crises in that. Some people think of it only as like substances, like using substances. But, you know, if I was to be hospitalized, that to me, that's still, it's a relapse. It's a reversion back to something in an unhealthy place for me. And I, I think that happens to a lot of peer supporters. They stop doing those things. They stop staying healthy, like, like as if they can't have another mental health crisis. I, I hear you, Jim. And um, what you just said is the reason that I work part-time. Mm. I, I chose to work part-time in order to still maintain my recovery. Mm. And if I look realistically at my track record, the longest I've been able to maintain full-time employment and mental health stability is a maximum of two years. So if I want to maintain my recovery, I already have longevity with what I've been doing, which is working part-time and maintaining my recovery. And it has allowed me to be in recovery for over six and a half years, which realistically is the longest I've ever been well since I was 12 years old. So that's pretty miraculous. Yeah, yeah. How does that feel? Oh, it, it's very humbling, Jim. It, it's, it's a deep, humble gratitude. I don't know how else to explain it. I've, I, there have been two hospitalizations that no one was able or no one was willing to take care of where I lived when I was in there. So there, there yeah. were two hospitalizations that I lost everything I owned. Mm -hmm. I have no baby pictures. I have none of the scrapbooks that I made. I, what I have today in, in my house is a maximum of six and a half years old. Mm -hmm. How long did it take for you to get get your kids back after that crisis where your kids got taken away? How long did it take to get to get your kids back? That was in June. And then I was admitted to the state hospital by June 30th. I was that was the first time I lost everything I owned. Mm. I was discharged in September to the POV in Missoula and we need to do another podcast on how to get out of homelessness. It, this is a big issue that is. That's a whole nother and I would really like to do a podcast on that sure. in the future. Sure, sure. So I was discharged to the POV mm -hmm. and it wasn't until April 
that the judge let me uh, have the kids every other weekend. So from June, the, from June the year before, yep. April of the next year. Yep. And then um, I would meet the boys' dad in Deer Lodge. So we would both drive and meet in Deer Lodge. And I would have them every other weekend. And now, now it's the opposite. Um, now I have them full time mm -hmm. and their dad has them every other weekend. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way since I want to say September of 2017. Mm -hmm. So for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you've been able to maintain recovery. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through the yeah. school of hard knocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that that those those lessons, the the lived experience. I mean, that's what makes us great peer supporters. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. Um, without the experience, we're playing from left field. That's yeah. why. Uh, from the very beginning, when I got my license, I, I, I kind of told myself, I don't want to work strictly with addictions. Mm -hmm. Yes, co-occurring has always been a part of my story. And that was our first podcast together. Yeah. But I knew, I knew I didn't want to work strictly with addictions. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of peer support positions within SUD treatment facilities. Yeah. Yeah. I just have so much to offer the mental health side of peer support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, so when you started working at the state hospital, do you find, do a lot of the patients ask you straight away, they'll ask, I know they did this for me when I ran groups there. Um, <clears throat> have you ever been hospitalized? They like qualify you. They want to, they want to qualify you like, have you ever really been hospitalized? Do you find that? Does that happen for you? Be, before I do groups, I, I introduce myself and I ask them what they think peer support is. Mm -hmm. And once they answer, whoever wants to chime in, mm -hmm. I tell them, you know, that I too have been a patient there many times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I just do a, a introduction and I'm real with them. Yeah. And, and if they ask me, I, I, I am honest and I am yeah. open. Yeah. Um, sometimes you hear um, as a peer support, you shouldn't share personal information. And I, I feel like the more honest I can be that that is yeah. authenticity and yeah. that that is who I am. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. And some, some people um, who are also patients there, they remember me as a patient. Mm. Uh, it, it was pretty miraculous. I, I mm. did see a patient who was um, pretty much there whenever I was. Mm. And, and they said, Hey, Sam, how you doing? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I just was like, you remembered me like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like wow you're peer support now good for you like yeah so. yeah yeah 
Yeah, yeah. I can remember, you know, when I would go and do groups, you know, there, somebody would always ask, you know, do you know what it's like? Have you ever been hospitalized? That sort of thing. Had a mental health crisis, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I have. I get it. You know, um, I was never hospitalized at Montana State Hospital. Um, I was uh, born and raised uh, in Chicago. And so my, all my hospitalizations took place there before I moved out here to Montana. Um, but yeah, um, let's go back. Let's talk more about that, um, you know, crisis and the, you know, you've shared like the impact obviously to your family and your kids and, you know, you, you lost, you, I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen to us, jobs, relationships, family, but I know for me, the biggest, the biggest loss was the loss of, of my, um, of my, of my, I'm trying to think how to say this, my confidence in my own thoughts my my confidence in what my brain is telling me is real or accurate and i and i still to this day feel like that is the biggest loss that i there's always this thing in the back of my mind that's like is your mind is your mind telling you the right thing here or and, and now, you know, it's been a lot of years. So now I know to check in with other people, right? And I can check in and say, this is what I'm thinking. How does that sound to you, right? To sort of like validate that or or, or to get feedback to say, no, that sounds off. But, but what was your experience like? Do you have something like that? Like, what do you feel like your biggest loss was? Or did you feel that that way like I did with you couldn't trust your own thoughts, your own mind. I, what I'm thinking is um, it's not completely similar, but it is. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror after 20, mm -hmm. after what happened in 2017, mm -hmm. I was completely broken. Mm -hmm. I, I was, I, I even, so I've had the same counselor on and off since I was 19. Mm. I think I've had three other providers sparsely intermissed in there, but she's been my mainstay go-to LCPC since I was 19. Mm. And she asked me one day, uh, I'm not getting much eye contact. Mm. I'm not. I'm not getting much eye contact from you and it's guilt and it's shame. Um, I was so broken. And when my kids came back to me, I would constantly have to tell them my, my eyes are right here. Like they, they, they didn't have eye contact either. Mm. And they they were six and nine before I got my life together. So it's very humbling, and that's where that 
very humble gratitude comes from for my recovery because I know uh, we did a webinar a while back. I think it was this last winter about activating events. And mm -hmm. I said that we were talking about activating events, like mm -hmm. the common mm -hmm. ones would be like stress, jail, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a death of a loved one, etc. Mm -hmm. And I said, every day is an activating event for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the reaction, right? Yeah, but it's yeah. true. Yeah. Every day I wake up, I have to embrace my recovery. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. by the time I went through all of those hospitalizations, by the time it was 2017, I made a vow to myself that I was going to do three things every day I wake up. I was going to take my meds, I was going to stay clean and sober, and I was going to use my support system. Mm. And as long as I do those three things every day I wake up, I know I'm going to be in recovery. Mm. Nice. 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 Mm. It was like early on for me that I... Um, one of the, the, there was a couple of commitments I made in the beginning, a couple of goals I set. One was um, I was going to do something every day for my recovery. Six days a week, I gave myself one day off. And, and when I say do something for my recovery, I mean something substantial. So it's therapy, it's a support group, right? It's connecting with others, it's, um, educating myself on mental health or recovery. I, I'm, I'm an avid book reader. Uh, that was one of them. The other thing was I was gonna get up every day and take a shower and put on clean clothes. That was something I had trouble doing when I wasn't well. That was something I didn't do when I wasn't well every day. <clears throat> I'm going to do that. And, and when I'm taking a shower, it's, it's a, it's, it's part of it is symbolic of sort of washing off the previous day, the previous day or the stresses or the concerns or the, so that, so that when I step out of the shower and go to get dressed, I'm preparing for that day to be there in the moment and be the best gym that I can be. And, and that is something that I've maintained, you know, ever since. I mean, that is something I still do today. And um, for the first five years, I did something every day for my recovery, a conscious, consciously doing something every day committed to it. And not that I stopped doing it after I reached the five-year mark, but it began to change because I had changed, right? But that commitment and having a goal and recognizing, I got to do some of the work here. That this isn't just going to happen if I just take medication and go to therapy and um, everything's going to change. I'm going to have to do things consistently to keep myself healthy. And that's what I hear you. And just in knowing you, Sammy, I, those are like, that's, it really comes to mind. And I think that that's for people with a mental health 
diagnosis and whether you're co-occurring <clears throat> or not, I think that I think that's vital in maintaining recovery. And and something like taking a shower, I remember saying that one time to somebody and they said, oh, that's that's not recovery. People do that. But no, that was a big deal. <laughs> like putting on clean yeah. clothes every day. That was a big deal. Yeah. I, whenever I get in crisis, um, once it gets past that manic stage into psychosis, I I won't shower. I won't change my clothes because I believe I'm under surveillance. Like I lose every sense of privacy that I have. Mm. And um, when you said that you're going to do one thing every day for your recovery, it reminded me years and years ago, my counselor said, do one thing every day that makes you feel competent and confident. And if I'm going through a depression, that one thing means a lot. Yeah. And you know, when, when I go through a depression, I am making myself do things. Mm -hmm. And I believe that making myself do things through all of the counseling that I've done, all the work I've done, all the self-help I've done, is I learn how to skillfully provide for myself and my needs and how to survive. And it's not a survival in a negative sense because as we grow in our recovery, we realize that some of those things we did to survive in active addiction and prior to recovery, that those really aren't helpful, right? So I think that it's really, really important to, to keep on the road of recovery, even if it's doing one thing each day. Yeah, yeah. What do you what what do you think that you know you shared the story about your mom coming to see you and what what do you think for other people you know for the people in our lives what do you think is important for them right if they have a loved one with a mental health diagnosis what do you think is important for them to be doing or supporting what's your what's your view on that I actually just talked to my mom this morning, um, mm. and I I honestly have uh, been in a depression for probably eight months or more, mm. and I've been skillfully acting through it, but it is making myself do things every day, mm -hmm. and I've been out of my depression for about a month now, and I started to get a little hypomanic not manic but some of those warning signs right mm -hmm. so i was telling her you know that a week ago i went back on a low dose of medication and um she was asking you know about the td and if that's doing any better 
um, because two years ago I had TD really, really bad. Um, it was affecting my eyes and making me blink all the time. And I'm a single mom. My kids play sports. I have to drive in the dark. Like, I'm going to get in an accident. It's that serious. So I went on Ingreza. And so she was asking me about that as well. And so I was explaining to her how the medication act in your brain chemistry. And she's like, well, I said, well, does that make sense? And she goes, well, kind of as much as I can wrap my brain around it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think for her, um, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but just from knowing the past, she has wanted to help and she has tried to help. And I, in my sickness, push her away. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that I'm learning is that if I catch myself soon enough, it won't get that bad. And I hear all the time about NAMI putting on family to family mental right. health trainings. Right. And it's like a series of eight weeks where you can go mm -hmm. once a week mm -hmm. and do family to family mental health awareness. Mm -hmm. I, I've never personally been to one. Mm -hmm. But I know that NAMI advertises those. And mm -hmm. I know if your community has a NAMI chapter, I I don't see how it could hurt. Right, right. Because lots of times families don't understand. I remember one time my dad told me, um, if you get a job and work hard enough, you will sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Because he, he knew I wasn't sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. and, and for him, that's what makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm not judging my dad. I don't believe it was negative. But for him, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I know that that's not true for me. I mean, there was a time when I was working construction. I was doing landscaping. I was like painting in Big Sky. But that those are hard jobs. And I was manic and soon to be psychotic and couldn't right. even function after that. Right. So, right. so right. you know, sometimes sometimes our families can be old school and not not understand. You know, mm -hmm. you hear people say, Oh, you know, pull yourself up from the bootstraps. Well, mm. well, you know. Right. I have a different perspective because my experience has been different and my experience has proven to me what is effective and what is not. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And sleep, sleep is such a vital piece of overall well-being that I've experienced that I've gone, you know, I've had uh, the worst I think I ever had was about four months where I couldn't, I couldn't sleep regular, uh, either intermittent or just a few hours each night. And man, it, it just, 
you can't hardly function. I, I can't hardly function like that. You know, um, sleep is a big piece. And it's so interesting because it's not something that um, that gets talked about much. You know, early in my recovery, I went to a mental health center and it's not something that gets talked about, you know, that uh, just like diet, you know, what, what we eat, what we're consuming, you know, um, that's another one that I have found over the years is really important for me, the sleep and what I'm eating. And those are important pieces that I have to address every single day. And um, it's, it's part of my well-being. It's part of my overall well-being. Um, but those took years to understand, to raise my awareness, to educate myself, and then to be able to get routines in place so that I could stay, stay healthy. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I, I think for uh, family members, I, I think the, the, I like what you said about educating yourself. I think that's really important. And I think just um, unconditional love. I, I think that that's an important one um, with friends and family members that even when it's really scary and a person is not themselves, not acting themselves, not talking like themselves, whatever, whatever that looks like. I think that that's vital to maintain that unconditional love and not be able to separate your own stuff from what's happening with the loved one. I, I agree with that. And um, my experience has been that now I know looking back on it, that my, my family did try to talk to me and they did try to love me through it. But there was, by the time people realized that I was too far gone. I was too far gone to realize that I myself needed help because again, that denial sets in. So then no matter how loving and kind and tolerant my family is, their last resort is to get CPS involved, do welfare checks, get law enforcement involved, and then when you do get out, you're like, what in the world? I have to start my whole life over. And dealing with those resentments, I don't know about anybody else who has mental health disorders, but I had some pretty significant resentments for, yeah. for my family um, calling yeah. CPS and getting law enforcement involved. Yeah, because I viewed it as taking my life away. Yeah, it hurt. It hurt. I mean, you're a mom. And that's that's deeply wounding for sure. Yeah. yeah. But but if you if you can't catch it in time. That sometimes that is the the recourse is to get the law involved. And um, I would like to do some research. I know we shared videos in PS 101 about how they do deal with mental health crisis in other countries. I would be 
I would be really interested to do some more of that research because um, it is very traumatizing to go yeah. through a mental health crisis in yeah. the United States. Yeah. It is very, very traumatizing. Yeah. And the stigma and the lack of um, inclusiveness, like the, the stigma and the declassification of us as citizens just because we have a crisis is is very traumatizing yeah 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 i would agree and um you know i think in montana in particular i think we do a really poor job at handling um individuals in mental health crisis and um you know you said this in the very beginning most of the stabilization centers in our state are are closed today because the state of Montana doesn't want to pay. And so provider agencies can't keep functioning and running a business and not being able to recoup money to be able to function. And there definitely seems to be a lot of uh, discrimination in that regard. Um, we certainly don't treat someone who um, has a diagnosis of heart disease or cancer, we, we don't do that. We don't, right? Um, but we do that with mental health. And the, 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 the people who I think who bear the biggest burden, um, besides the you and me, the individuals with the diagnosis, but in the system, is we, we sort of dump it on law enforcement. And we, uh, law enforcement, that's not their job that that's not really their responsibility to um, be handling mental health calls. They really are not trained to do that. And while things like CIT, crisis intervention training, um, is there to educate law enforcement, that's not that's really not <clears throat> an effective tool. Um, we need we need we need uh, behavioral health professionals to be involved. And this is a, this is like a whole, like you said, this is a whole nother podcast that we could literally talk about within the system. Yeah, we, we could totally yeah. have a podcast about the C crisis response teams, crisis intervention teams. Yeah. The centers, the stabilization centers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We could totally do that because, yeah. you know. CRT crisis response who does evaluations for people in crisis they're they're facing the same fate yeah. as the residential crisis units yeah 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 agreed I think the 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 other thing to throw in there too would be to talk about the um um the the laws around uh being incapacitated and you know how that whole system works and how broken that system is and People don't have any support or anybody talking for them, supporting for them. And yeah, I mean, we should do that, Sam, if you'd be willing to come back on. Yeah, I am. And, do, and I want I want to do one on on overcoming homelessness. Yeah, yeah, that would be another one. And, and in fact, I have another member who I've been talking to um, who wants to do one on that. So maybe we could do the three of us even. And and uh, and talk about that because that's another that's another big one and it's another type of crisis facing not just Montana 
but our whole country, homelessness is on the rise. And, um, you know, there's been a number of things happening around Montana with communities facing really high numbers of individuals who are homeless. And there's a lot of stigma around that. And um, yeah, that's that's happening, especially in Bozeman right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bozeman, Billings, Kalispell, Missoula, Great Falls, Helena, all the major cities are experiencing this and they're ill-equipped to, to deal with it. They're completely ill-equipped because we have a broken crisis system and now we have homelessness. And so let's do that. Let's do another podcast and we'll talk about overcoming homelessness and, and what, what that's like. So, well, thank you, Sammy. Thank you for your time and your vulnerability and sharing your experience here. Um, I think it's invaluable to listeners. And I think the more we talk about these topics um, and, and share our experiences, the more awareness we can raise out there for other individuals. And uh, you're doing great work as a peer supporter. Thank you, Jim. It's always great to talk to you and see you and be a part of Montana Peer Network for sure. Great. Well, thanks, Sammy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode. Uh, each week we're putting out these podcasts and we're talking about recovery and we're talking about peer support. And on these podcasts, um, you might notice we have a new jingle going on. We got a new intro and we're, we're diving a little deeper into these in, into our conversations um, than we have ever before. So please keep tuning in and uh, like and subscribe. Thank you. There's always hope. Recovery is possible. Recovery works. There's hope in recovery. Healing takes time. Recovery means resilience. You, know, you can get through anything. Recovery works. Recovery works.